There is a story about how your podcast is defended, Lord. That Spotify itself would be destroyed if anyone tried to steal your recordings. Is, is that true? Yes, and that would shatter the industry. Nothing would survive. Not NPR or Gimlet, not Wondery or Radiotopia, not even the YouTubers jumping on the podcast bandwagon. <laughs> I will not let Siona try to get your podcast. <laughs> wow, even the YouTubers. <laughs> even the YouTubers. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name's Abu. My name is Leo. And Leo. Yeah. It's time to continue this wild and wacky fourth <laughs> book in the Dune saga. It's God Emperor of Dune! It's God Emperor of Dune, and I'm <laughs> so excited. <laughs> what a weird book. And yes, truly. I feel like this reading is where it kind of kicks up in some of the weirdness. Definitely. But before we get into the assigned reading and our takeaways and all of that, let's take care of our housekeeping. Let's make shout out Mapes proud. For sure. As usual, today's episode will contain no spoilers beyond the pages and books we've covered thus far. So as long as you have read the first three books and you're caught up on today's reading in book four, you're good to go. Indeed. Now, of course, as always, a huge, huge shout out, a worm-sized shout out to our Quisats Hatterack level patrons, Case Aiken and Matthew Good. Gentlemen, I would let you use the Ixian lift, all right? You don't have to take the stairs, Yeah. Friends. Oh my gosh. Yeah, get on up here. Gosh. I got charcuterie board is out for you. All right. <laughs> yeah. VIPs always take the lift. The stairs are for Listen. the plebs. <laughs> it's true. It's on Patreon. You can see under your tier benefits. Yeah, you get to use the Ixian lift. <laughs> but of course, our thank you extends to all of our supporters on Patreon and all everyone who listens. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Y'all know the game plan for these book club episodes. We will start today with the summary of the reading, and then we'll dive into a couple of takeaways and then wrap up by chomping down on some delicious, yummy, nutritious <laughs> spice morsels. So before we tackle today's reading, let's take a quick breather, but don't go anywhere, folks. When we come back, we're jumping into chapter 10. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed your little breather. Let's do it. Let's kick off with chapter 10 of God Emperor of Dune. So, 
our first chapter today begins with Nayla, everyone's favorite giant blocky woman, <laughs> climbing the steps to Leto's Tower for a quarterly performance review with the God Emperor. <laughs> now, in a brief aside, she notes the Ixian elevator that she's not allowed to take, which is a massive flex. Major flashbacks, of course, to Paul's throne room mm -hmm. with his like intentionally long walk right. to the very large throne. <laughs> yeah. We also get confirmation that Nayla was wearing the Cybus hood. So this, I think, is the first time we get literal confirmation that the fish speaker guard who kind of assessed the new Duncan Idaho Gola mm -hmm. is Nayla. Yeah, that was a pretty safe assumption to make back in that chapter, considering Duncan <laughs> yeah. was like, holy shit, that's the blockiest, largest woman I've ever seen in my life. Now we pretty much get confirmation that that was most likely Nayla assessing the new Duncan Gola right. in the earlier chapter. It's true. Now, as Leto is awaiting her arrival, he looks out onto Arrakis and he's kind of letting his mind wander. Mm -hmm. He's sort of, he's wool gathering. And he considers his role as a god to Nayla and thinks back on their very first conversation where he commanded her to obey Siona. Quote, even if Siona sends you to kill me, you must obey. She must never learn that you serve me. End quote. <laughs> wow. In that moment, to cement her devotion, Leto gave her an actual Chris knife <laughs> that once belonged to one of the wives of Stilgar, which is incredible. Yeah. And even that memory of that little ceremony where he gave her the knife and it was this whole, I mean, he was using it to manipulate her. But even that still stirred up some emotions and made Leto unusually emotional. Yeah. Quote, he had given it to her in the original ritual, a ceremony which had surprised him by evoking emotions he had thought forever buried. End quote. Wow. So the god emperor, the worm god, can still feel. Right. And it's these little glimpses of his humanity that I love to see throughout this book and throughout this character. We know the transformation Leto has undergone, but we also know that Leto to Atreides, the son of Paul Atreides and Atreides is buried somewhere deep in that gross, giant, wriggly <laughs> worm body. Yeah. He's sort of like by design, hard to relate to the way he thinks, the way he acts, everything. It's really, yeah. I don't find myself empathizing with Leto directly. But it's these little moments where not only does he still get surprised by his own journey internally, yeah. but also he does still have some of those emotions. Totally. Great point. Yeah. yeah. He's still human deep down somewhere. Yeah. Now, back in present day, Nayla finally arrives and Leto is still sort of wool gathering. He's still lost in his thoughts. And hilariously, he turns to her and <laughs> addresses her as if... <laughs> She was clued in on what was going on in his head. Right. <laughs> Quote, I have created a holy obscenity, he said. This religion built around my person disgusts me. End quote. <laughs> I love Nayla's response. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Walk, imagine walking into your one-on-one -on -one with your manager and like, I have created a holy obscenity is the first <laughs> thing they yell at you. That's basically uh, what happens here. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, and Nayla, agreed. of course, this is her Lord speaking, right? She's just like <laughs> right. totally unfazed by this and responds, yeah. yes, Lord. This actually irks Leto a little bit. He's like, why is, 
I see just she just yes lording me. She's always yes lording me. <laughs> and he continues to sort of rage for a little bit about this quote unquote damnable religion. And he talks about the dangers of religious fanatics. And he's like, Neil, you are one of them. People like you are dangerous because of this religion around me. Nayla, for her part, unbothered. Yeah. <laughs> Quote, Nayla's green eyes on the gilded cushions of her cheeks stared out at him without questioning, without comprehension, without the need of either response. End quote. I love that. Incredible. I think that's such a beautiful summary of her unbotheredness. I mean, that's yeah. really what's happening, but it's, there's, there's almost like, it's very Zen. She's like, I, I'm not expected to question or comprehend because it's God. Yeah. Very Zen. Uh, I, I would wager very zombie as well. There, there's nothing <laughs> sure. to question here. You just, yes, Lord, because this is literally your Lord standing in front of you. Worship this person. Don't question anything they say or in the, any way they behave. Right. Now, finally, Leto does cool down and he's like, okay, shit. Oh, sorry about that. Let's get to the matter at hand. We're having this one-on-one -on -one meeting because, Nayla, I want your honest assessment on Siona. Will Siona survive this upcoming test? A test that now we have heard about and has been hinted at a couple of times in the book, but we still don't know exactly what the test is. Right. Nayla responds that she's not entirely sure. She can't give a solid yes and she can't give a solid no, but... There's no doubting that Siona is strong and motivated, and we clearly saw that in her chapters in the book so far. She clearly is in charge of these rebels. She survives the D-Wolf attack, gets away with the stolen journals. She's capable. And so then the conversation actually turns toward those stolen journals. And Leto reveals to both Nayla and us as the reader that what Siona stole will not actually reveal where his secret spice is hidden. But he does confirm that a spice hoard does exist. And in fact, those rumors of a kill switch in the spice hoard <laughs> yeah. are absolutely true. This is a hilarious little back and forth that Nayla and Leto have about this. Nayla says, quote, There is a story about how your hoard is defended, Lord that Arrakis itself would be destroyed if anyone tried to steal your melange. Is it true? And then Leto responds, quote, Yes, and that would shatter the Empire. Nothing would survive. Not Guild or Sisterhood, not Ix or Tleilaxu, not even the fish speakers. End quote. Yeah, pretty incredible. Pretty incredible stuff. That's a scary piece of information for your god to uh, suddenly tell you. So chapter 10 then concludes as Leto reinforces his command to Nayla that she must obey Siona in everything. No questions asked. And of course, Nayla's a bit shaken by this point in the conversation, given what she has just learned about the Spice Horde. But ultimately, this is Nayla we're talking about, and her unshakable faith in the God Emperor hardens her resolve. And she responds in the classic, Yes, Lord, I will do what must be done. <laughs> Tried and true, yeah. And as she leaves, as the meeting comes to a close, and as Nayla leaves, Leto considers what he has learned from the meeting. And this is a big piece of information. Quote, Siona has reached that explosive moment which I require. End quote. Right. It's go time, baby. 
It's go time. She's ready. Well, that kicks off chapter 11. And if you thought Leto had other things going on other than just meetings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> he's just got more meetings. <laughs> this time he's meeting Duncan Idaho as he finally meets his new Gola. And clearly this whole process is <laughs> is a routine. Like it's oh, yeah. a bit. It's scripted. It's all very like they had a trial and error process to get to what we're seeing now, basically. And although it's kind of a drag for Leto, he's like, okay, we got to, okay, dim the lights. Y'all know the routine. We got to, okay, do you have the fog machines are on? The fog (laughs) machines are on. Okay, cool. Uh, We have the bats, the hanging fake bats that like spook them because he's like, oh, it's a bat, you know? But nevertheless, we do get a little kind of earnest clue as to why all of this is so important. Quote, the presence of a Duncan pleases the Paul Atreides in me. End quote. Considering Paul was like foundational in Leto getting through childhood without worrying about abomination, you know, Paul and Shani looking over Leto and Ganema, I, I always get the impression that Paul is a very present other memory in Leto's conscious, mm-hmm. like in his mind. Mm-hmm. So that that's just a beautiful little thought yeah i I think that's also important because there was a conversation happening in our patron discord recently where someone had asked why does leto after three thousand plus years just keep bringing duncan back it seems like it's more trouble than it's worth at this point like what benefit is it getting from duncan over and over and over again because through context clues we can basically assume that a lot of them turn against leto eventually (laughs) and we yeah. saw Lay's gun Duncan try to shoot him in the very beginning of this book. So why like just keep doing that over and over when these Duncans inevitably turn against you, try to assassinate you? And I think here we get yet again another human emotional rationale for why Leto does things. Like of course he's doing his golden path, prescient, cold, calculated dictator part of the equation. Right. But here we see that the Paul Atreides in him, this is personal for him, the Paul Atreides in him likes having Duncan around. Yeah, at least as a piece of that puzzle. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And if the Duncan, right, exactly. If the Duncan fits into his larger plans, then great. Two birds, one stone. Right. So Duncan enters the room, you know, dark, mist, smoke <laughs> machines, full force, and the meeting begins. <laughs> the spooky ambiance music. Yeah. <laughs> 10 hours scary Halloween music to study and smoke to is playing on YouTube. <laughs> and Leto, immediately, again, he's following the script. He switches into Paul's voice. So he speaks with Paul's voice out of the darkness to ease this new Duncan Idaho into familiarity and a sense of comfort. Quote, there have been many changes, Duncan, Leto said. One thing, though, does not change. I am still Atreides, end quote. Yeah, and that becomes a key PR talking point for him throughout this whole first meeting. I am still Atreides. He touches back on it over and over again. It kind of uses that to anchor anytime it's getting a little bit off the rails. Right. He's like, wait, wait, wait. Hey, focus, focus. Hey, Duncan, Duncan, (laughs) still Atreides, still Atreides. Duncan is like, oh, oh, right, right, right. Exactly. 
Okay. <laughs> it's the jangly keys for the baby. <laughs> still Atreides. Hey, still Atreides. Duncan's like, oh, okay. Oh, shiny, shiny. I guess I'll be loyal. <laughs> exactly. So, not to reduce Duncan Idaho to a baby. But <laughs> he, throughout this meeting, Duncan is uh, bursting with questions. Totally. <laughs> as is to be expected. Yeah. The fucking fist speakers earlier were like, ah, he'll explain everything. He's like, okay, time for you to explain everything. And Leto is answering these questions pretty directly, pretty honestly. He's being very upfront about quite a bit. Yeah. Although he is also certainly omitting things that he's kind of saying, that'll make sense in time. Like, that's yes. just not something I can give you an answer to. Um, <laughs> you know, he's going, what is the golden path? And Leto's like, it, it's going to take five uh, books of yeah, Dune you, for you, you, got, you to begin to You got to read a couple thousand pages, <laughs> and then yeah. it'll only vaguely start to make sense. And then I'll take you to the Reddit, the subreddit, and you'll ask, <laughs> and then you'll get like nine different responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a process. Yeah. <laughs> it's a process, Duncan. Yeah, you can tell Leto's walking that tightrope of, I have to be direct with Duncan because he responds right. to directness. But I can't overwhelm him because he's already teetering on the edge. You know, he's already overwhelmed. And if I push it too much, he will crack. And right. so Leto's kind of walking that tightrope. Yeah. Well, the time finally arrives. Again, we're oh, doing the, we're doing this song and dance. <laughs> Everything's very co yeah. coordinated. The time finally arrives to turn on the lights. Oh my god! Disco ball! Disco ball Di comes oh, down. That would be fun. Disco ball. <laughs> The lights go up, the me. disco ball comes <laughs> down. <laughs> wiggle, 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 wiggle. And <laughs> do, do you like my moves, Duncan? I'm a worm now. <laughs> he reveals himself and his dance moves to Duncan Idaho. And understandably, Duncan's like, oh my fucking God, <laughs> what yeah. am I looking at? He's shocked. He's grossed out by what he's looking at, what the Atreides have become. And it takes him a moment to collect himself, right? And again, Leto instantly leans right back into, remember, I'm Atreides. In fact, I'm all, all <laughs> Atreides. the Atreides. I'm every yeah. Atreides that ever existed. Remember that. Don't forget that. You know, he, he's right. using this sort of calm messaging that he knows has worked with previous Golas. So once Duncan collects himself and finally has a visual of Leto to Atreides, he cuts to the chase. He's like, okay, so you want me to be the commander of your fish speakers. What are the job details? You know, what, what's the benefits package? What's my salary? What are yeah. my responsibilities? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, why am I in charge of an all-female army? Explain this to me. And this leads to actually kind of a cute moment that made me chuckle where Duncan blushes because Leto <laughs> calls him out for being yeah. intimate with the fish speakers. Right. Remember back when they gave him a bath at the end of that one chapter. And in a weird little aside, we learned that blushing is apparently something Leto has bred completely out of humanity at this point, whether or not that's on purpose or just a side effect of his other breeding objectives isn't made clear but either way humans don't blush anymore and duncan is perhaps one of the only ones left in the empire who does quote leto found this a charming reaction the duncans Same. were among the few humans of these times who could do this end quote yeah what a weird little detail what a weird <laughs> <laughs> oh 
when we finally get the film adaptation of this, no one's allowed to blush. They'll have to retake any scene where someone blushes. <laughs> yeah, like the continuity, like lore expert on on staff is just like, <laughs> stop blushing, stop it, <laughs> it's wrong. <laughs> I know Jason Momoa is right there. Stop blushing. <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible, Lord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I kind of glossed over that all female question that. Duncan asked. And the reason for that is because our entire takeaway later will be dedicated to talking more in depth about that idea because we get it again in chapter 12 as well. So hold your thoughts. We will be revisiting that. Indeed. Now, the conversation turns to Leto's role as God (laughs) and ultimate ruler (laughs) of the all of everything. And Duncan's like, yeah, I don't like that. I don't I don't like that. And Leto's like, bro, me neither. It sucks. It's like, excuse me, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was not expecting that response. <laughs> right, right. But Leto's sales pitch in all of this, his sort of spiel, is that his Quisat's Hatterack abilities, <laughs> he's a supporter on our patron, make him <laughs> uniquely situated to be the kind of despotic ruler that humanity needs. Right. He's like, uh, like, would you rather me turn the power over to the Benny Gesserit? Like, who do you want to be in charge? Right. Like, answer that question for me adequately, you know, and I'll get and Duncan's like, oh, yeah, you're right. That kind of there isn't really a great answer to it. I just don't like it. And Leto's like, yeah, I mean, me neither. But here we are. I also loved there was this little moment where he says, <laughs> uh, oh, he's saying that there's always rebels, especially in the younger people. There's always rebels. And Duncan's like, why? Leto says, quote, it's very difficult convincing the young of anything. They're born knowing so much. Oh, my goodness. What a quote. It's fantastic. It's also, I mean, first of all, it's better than Fear is the Mind Killer. But also, (laughs) you think about when he says the the young, right? He's talking about Siona and he's talking about the young fish speakers. And he's talking about Kluteg and, and all of those who were rebelling against him. But he's also 3,500 years old. Everyone is young. All of humanity is young. So he's saying also, like, yes, about these rebels. But I also see this as a commentary on all of humanity is quite difficult to convince of anything, despite the fact that they are so young compared to me. They have so much less experience than me because they're all born knowing so much. Right, right. I don't know. I I loved that duality of that little moment. I was like, this, I know what it's about, but it's also so much about so much more, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now, Duncan isn't entirely sold on all this, but his Atreidean loyalty is there. It's still kind of the bedrock of who Duncan Idaho is. Yeah. Um, So for now, his doubts are more or less overcome. Yeah. And actually, that's kind of where the chapter wraps up too. chapter 11 ends as this interview with Duncan concludes and duncan accepts the job he will be the commander of the fish speakers and the way he does it is just classic duncan quote presently idaho permitted himself that devil may care grin for which he had been so well known then i will speak to the first leto and to paul the ones who know me best use me well for i did love you end quote He's so hot. He's so fucking hot. Even just through his fucking little paragraph here, I'm like, 
Wow. Oh, oh my God. My God. I'm blushing. Jesus. I know I'm not I'm supposed blushing. to do that on set, but. <laughs> I'm not allowed anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, he notably sort of pledges his allegiance to the first Leto, aka right. Daddy Oscar Isaac, and to Paul Atreides, <laughs> and not necessarily to Leto to the Worm God, right? He's like, right. I knew them best. They knew me best. And it's because of them that I am agreeing to this because I'm trusting that you are of their line, that you are of the line of Atreides that I am loyal to. And these words really shake up Leto. We got a couple more glimpses into his humanity here. Quote, Leto closed his eyes. Such words always distressed him. He knew it was love to which he was most vulnerable. End quote. Yeah. Wow. It's beautiful. It also confirms what Siona and the rebels were saying about his journal entry about Ganema. They're like, he can love and that's capable a weakness. of love. Right. Yeah. Right. There's a, ch- there's a chip in that. the armor. Yeah. Yeah. He's a hopeless romantic, always on yeah. those dating apps. <laughs> <laughs> Monet, I keep swiping right. I have no matches. No matches. <laughs> I keep only matching with you, Monet. <laughs> Moneo's just creating hundreds of burner accounts right. to swipe right on his lord. <laughs> the subscriptions are through the charts. He's like running out of super likes. <laughs> so chapter 11 ends on actually one more sort of heartbreaking note because Moneo enters in at this point. He's like, oh, uh, this is the moment where Leto gets emotional. So Moneo comes in, takes the Duncan away and gives the emotionally drained Leto a moment to recompose himself. And in the final lines of this chapter, we get yet again another glimpse of the God Emperor's humanity. Quote, Good Moneo, Leto thought. So good. He knows me so well, but I despair of his ever understanding me. End quote. Yeah. It's lonely. Yeah. Being the 3,500-year Godworm omniscient ruler of the universe. Well, in our final chapter today, it's going to be a pretty quick summary. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our final chapter today is Duncan and Moneo having breakfast together, basically. So let's quickly summarize the broad beats of the conversation. So Moneo shows up at Duncan's like luxury apartment. Yeah, <laughs> like, how much was the rent on the? Oh, in New York, tens of thousands of dollars a month. <laughs> and they sit down for breakfast as Duncan basically bombards the major domo with questions. And everything about this morning meeting has the same sort of scripted feeling of the previous meeting that Duncan just had with Plato, right? Like right. every little thing is just waiting for a keyword or like, a, oh, this is the point at which. So Moneo says, like now <laughs> and brings in right. the prepared meal of like <laughs> Duncan's favorite fruits and like all of the things. Yeah, totally. So it's it's so scripted and planned. And once they're settled, Moneo basically attempts to explain this whole all-female army. And the gist is that Leto believes all male armies create kind of cults of youth where adolescence and there's homosexuality that kind of proliferates. And and then the males, very importantly, never grow out of that military mindset. And then that is dangerous to the people that they are, in theory, in charge of protecting. Right. Basically. Yep. And we're going to talk at length about 
this conversation because it is one of those first of all it's just uh, dense it's very dense mm -hmm. and then the other thing is this chapter is very easily could rub you the wrong way and we're going to talk about the different ways that you could interpret it basically yeah and there's definitely some maybe some problematic thinking from the 80s present here so mm -hmm. we'll talk about that mm -hmm. but the conversation turns toward leto's breeding program when Monet was like, oh, yeah, I'm like a descendant of, of you. <laughs> Duncan's like, fucking what? Excuse me? Gr grand? Grand child? How far down are we talking? <laughs> right. Um, which is kind of a shocking moment. And this throws Duncan for a loop. Quote, Idaho stared into Moneo's eyes, lost suddenly in a tangle of relationships. Idaho found the relationships impossible to understand. Which of them was truly the older? Which the ancestor and which the descendant? End quote. Incredible. And fucking yeah. You're <laughs> you're a clone 3,000 years later and you're looking at someone who's like your grandkid, but they're older than you. And like, yeah, very confusing. Right. And in this moment, Moneo also casually mentions like, oh yeah, you actually might also father some additional descendants. It's a it's a very complex spider web, this family tree. Yeah. I think this also means that Moneo should probably call Duncan daddy. Don't we all already? <laughs> oh yeah, it's true. <laughs> he's just he's late to the party, but he'll he'll call Duncan Daddy from now on too. <laughs> now the chapter wraps up as they turn to the topic of Leto's godhood and religion. Oof. And Moneo doubles down on what Leto had said the other day. Leto dislikes the religion and dislikes the, the stuff as, almost as much as, if not more, more so than Duncan does. Yeah. But he has to lean into it. It's part of the goals. It's right. part of his, his overall scheme. Right. And by the end of the conversation, Moneo observes that Duncan sees him with a kind of mix of admiration and dislike. And as much as you might be like, wow, what a surprising thing. Uh-huh. Moneo then kind of quips, quote, the Duncans always begin that way end quote it's like oh wait all of this has happened yep. many 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 times this entire chapter is just a rehearsed play-by-play -play that has happened countless times before it's true so those are our chapters for today but we've got some takeaways we have to talk about this all-female army thing indeed uh, so we're gonna do that right after a quick break Stick around. We'll be right back. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on a whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days In, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details.
Welcome back, everyone. Let's now turn toward our enormous takeaway today. Yeah. And there's only one because there is a lot to talk about. We have to address the giant sandworm in the room. In the chapter summaries, <laughs> yeah. we sort of skirted around this topic, but it's time to take on this all-female army idea head on. Right. Mostly because this is a pretty controversial idea, and the book dives into some divisive takes around gender and sexuality. Now, before we get into this conversation, we want to be very clear with a caveat up front. We're going to share basically two interpretations of the all-female army idea as it's presented in these chapters, because both of us, frankly, ended up at two different interpretations, and we'll share each of our analyses. But of course, that is just two takes from two Dune fans based on our own individual life experiences and knowledge and worldviews. And we can't, of course, speak for anyone else. Right. Um, right. Or, and we can't obviously speak for Frank himself either, right? We can only interpret the words on the page. Totally. So with that being said, we also want to invite all of you, our dear listeners, to share your perspective on the chapters from today and the ideas presented in this book and the ideas around gender and sexuality and the all-female army. So gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Please share your ideas with us because we can only share two of them here. Totally. And there are countless others out there. Yeah. And I'll also say, I think, you know, both of us, we have our different takes on, on all of this, but I think there's also an element of even outside of what I think the chapter is, I recognize that whatever your reaction to, to this chapter is valid. So if you Absolutely. read this chapter and it rubbed you the wrong way, totally valid. Uh, even though I'm going to be talking about a different take on a lot of this, I don't at, at any point want you to feel as a listener that uh, we're saying it's wrong to have been affected negatively by any of this. Of course. Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's set the scene a little bit and then we'll share our thoughts on it. And I want to start by breaking down Leto's reasoning behind the fish speakers, right? In that first one-on-one, -on -one, Duncan's like, what's with the all-female army? Explain this to me. And Leto does explain, but he kind of keeps it brief during that first interview. Quote, there are behavioral differences between the sexes which make women extremely valuable in this role. End quote. And he pretty much doesn't elaborate beyond that to Duncan. The elaboration doesn't take place until Moneo shows up and the two of them sit down for breakfast in Duncan's apartment. And Moneo then expands on it. Quote, the Lord Leto says that when it was denied an external enemy, the all-male army always turned against its own population. Always. End quote. Yeah. So far, for me at least, I'm following these ideas, right? Totally. Yeah. Like, Leto through his vast knowledge of humanity, has recognized that women tend toward certain types of behavior that he finds useful in military roles within his empire. They are useful to his overall plan to the Golden Path. And his other memory has given him countless examples of male armies being dangerous to the populace that they are supposedly protecting. Right. All of that pretty understandable, given what we know about 
actual human history and about Leto's abilities. Now, the conversation continues, and Moneo says at breakfast, quote, He says that the all-male army has a strong tendency toward homosexual activities, end quote. Right. And this is where, for me, things start to take a bit of a left turn. We're getting a bit thornier here. But it could be argued that history proves Leto correct in this thinking. The thing that immediately came to mind for me was the tradition of pederastic relationships in ancient Greek armies, this idea that you'd have a male mentor and a younger male trainee, and they would act not just as like a mentor and a trainer, but also a romantic partner, an intimate partner in whatever way, emotional, physical. Right. But oftentimes that would basically only last until the young trainee came of age, and then they'd go on and marry and have a family. But Leto is not necessarily incorrect in saying that militaries and homosexual activities can be tied together. Yeah, it's, you know, you, you, you get a group of all men together in a situation, and regardless of personal sexual preference, it happens where people find release with one another. Of and course. it's like, historically, all the fucking time. In the Greek society, they were expected to then, at some point, like probably marry a woman, you know, many of them would marry women, but again, regardless of sexual preference, because you would then create a family and a house and blah, blah, blah. Right. And you have that sometimes ongoing sexual relationship with this other guy. Yes. And, you know, so that's historically, I think there's, there's a lot of data there. Totally. Totally. And I, I think sticking with the Greek argument, there's also, it's impossible to say that the Greeks were gay, straight, whatever, because they right. literally didn't think in those terms. Like that culture yeah, at the time, right. the society at the time didn't look at sexuality in that like weirdly binary construct. So yeah, they like had these relationships and the, they were fluid throughout life and maybe they, you know, whatever. It's like dramatically different from the way we look at the world now. But right. trying to think of it through Leto's perspective, he can tap into those human histories and realize how militaries and all-male armies have been sexually fluid throughout history. I think history supports his claim there. Totally. Now, Duncan, in this moment, gets super defensive about Moneo's statement. He's like, bro, I never, what? What are you saying? I've never, <laughs> Yeah. what are you trying to say? Say it to my face. Yeah, kind of weirdly defensive, Duncan. <laughs> like, yeah, a little too weirdly defensive, uh, which makes me actually question, but anyway. Leto says all male armies have sex with each other sometimes. Duncan's like, I, I've never I done that. It's like, <laughs> what, me? He takes a sip and then spits it out just to do a spit take. <laughs> Moneo's like, oh, he's so dramatic. So dramatic. Moneo clarifies, though. He's like, chill, chill, buddy. T take another sip. Yeah. <laughs> this tendency for homosexuality, again, speaking, he's sort of speaking for Leto here. He's explaining Leto's views. He says that this tendency comes from the fraternity-like nature of armies. Quote, Adolescent attitudes, just boys together, jokes designed purely to cause pain, loyalty only to your packmates, things of that nature. End quote. Right. So Moneo's just like, when you get a bunch of dudes together, boys will be boys. And... This sort of calms Duncan down, basically. Like, okay, fine. You're not accusing me of that. I, I of course. Yeah, I, I, never. Me, me, no. <laughs> me, never. No. Me, never. Now, this is where 
I would say sort of our, our divergent interpretations take place. I think up to this point, yeah. we're, we're generally in agreement. Um, yeah. So I want to be super clear. Like, I think from here forward, I'm speaking for myself. I don't want to speak sure. for you, Leo. Now, Moneo doubles down because the next thing he says is, quote, the homosexual latent or otherwise, who maintains that condition for reasons which could be called purely psychological, tends to indulge in pain-causing behavior, seeking it for himself and inflicting it upon others, end quote. And uh, this is a big yikes for me at this point, because the way I, way I understand Monet's explanation here is that Leto believes or Moneo believes that a male that joins an army and becomes homosexual because of psychological reasons, when they continue to maintain that quote-unquote condition, they then cause pain to themselves and others. And obviously, in 2023, we know that a person's sexuality is not a choice. It's not something that they choose to suddenly become, uh, whether it's external forces or internal forces. And obviously, whether you're homosexual or straight or anything in between on the spectrum, that has nothing to do with how likely you are to inflict harm to others or to yourself. So this to me reads as like a pretty homophobic statement coming from Moneo. And ostensibly coming from Leto. This is Leto's reasoning behind this. Right. And ultimately, I think this becomes a tough look for Frank also, because Frank, very much so in this book, uses Leto as a mouthpiece for his political and philosophical ideologies. And I want to sort of step out of the book for a second, because there is some extra context that I think is worth bringing up here. Frank had an estranged son named Bruce and Brian Herbert, we all know and love, <laughs> wrote a biography of his father called Dreamer of Dune. And right. in that biography, there are instances where Brian will talk about Bruce. And there are quotes in there that talk about their strained relationship. And there's a story in there about when Beverly was on her deathbed and Brian came to visit her, and Bruce wanted to come visit as well. But Frank was sort of like delaying him a little bit. And later on, Bruce admitted to his brother, he said to Brian, that he, quote, wondered, but did not say so to dad if this had anything to do with his homosexuality, which our father had never accepted, end quote. So it's pretty clear from that biography and from the words of Brian that Part of why Bruce and Frank's relationship was strained and why they were estranged for much of their life may have been due to Bruce Herbert's homosexuality. And I think it's worth calling that out, not because I'm out here to like attack Frank Herbert sure. or to besmirch his legacy or something. I love his works, of course. They are deeply important to me. But as much as I admire him and love the universe he created, I think it's still important to remember that he was a man of his time and that he may have held what we would consider today to be homophobic views and views that we would consider to be indefensible. And uh, I think it's 
fairly clear, at least to me, that some of these homophobic views found their way into his writing and reared its ugly head in characters like Leto II, in today's example, holding these beliefs, and in portrayals of characters like the Baron Harkonnen, which we've touched on before in previous episodes. And ultimately, I think for me, this is a big shortcoming of God Emperor of Dune. Like, I love the Dune saga. I love the six books that Frank wrote. But there are reasons why I dislike God Emperor of Dune, and this is one of them. Right. Now, to wrap up my point, because I've been talking for super long, I do want to hand the mic to you, Leo. Um, sure. To wrap up my point, Moneo then switches gears a little bit or continues the conversation here at breakfast and talks about some of those female behaviors that Leto values in his fish speaker army. Quote, They have a compelling physical way of moving from adolescence to maturity, Moneo said. As Lord Leto says, carry a baby in you for nine months, and that changes you. End quote. And I'm like, yeah, no argument here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, this I can agree with. This I can agree with, and I can understand Leto's point. And it's a broadly accepted fact that women are known to mature earlier and faster than men, both physically and emotionally and mentally. And yeah, I mean, like no one out, no one should be out here arguing that giving birth doesn't like fucking change you in a million different <laughs> yeah. ways, you know? Yeah. Like, yes, obviously, like that is, that is one of the most powerful things that women do. And um, frankly, I can't imagine how, how women do it. And of course it changes you. Now, it's weird that I, I am going from very strongly condemning and disagreeing with something that Moneo slash Leto say to now being like, yeah, hoorah, rah, I agree, of course. And that whiplash, this like very progressive idea about women squished between these like problematic ideas about homosexuality is so weird. And so I did some digging because I was like, okay, I need to, maybe I can find Frank himself trying to address some of these things. And the only thing that I could find was a 1985 speaking of a recording of a speaking event from UCLA where Frank Herbert was invited to speak on a panel or something from 1985. And an audience member asks him about the Baron Harkonnen and about why he portrays homosexual characters in the way he does and how, what he thinks about homosexuality in his books. And Frank sort of like, gives him sort of a response where he's like, that, that's not really what I was intending. I was just showing, showing these characters as aberrant. And then at, at that point, he states, quote, well, gays have opted to not continue the species, end quote. And that quote really stuck out to me because given that context, this sort of whiplash of like why the progressive idea about women and why the sort of regressive ideas about homosexuality are squished into the same like couple of paragraphs in this book. It seems clear to me that Frank believes that heterosexual relationships and women in particular played a key role in continuing the human race, right? This, these six books are so much about breeding programs, the Benny Jesuit, Leto, continuing the human race, the future of humanity. Clearly something Frank thought a lot about. And it seems that along that same line of thinking, he may have believed that homosexual relationships were thus an aberration, that they were incapable of continuing the human race and were thus outliers. 
all of this taken together, to just wrap up my very long point here, all of this taken together, I think is a tough look for Duncan Idaho, who really has some issues <laughs> with the all-female <laughs> army. He's really hung yeah. up about it. But it's also a tough look for Maneo and Leto, who have these beliefs that Maneo is trying to explain, and ultimately for Frank, who wrote the book. Does that mean, I want to be very clear about this, does that mean I'm out here waving the flag of cancel Frank Herbert and burn his books because he's a raging homophobe? Absolutely not. I'm not even claiming that I know anything about Frank's beliefs on homosexuality. I'm just presenting the facts and the research that I did and my interpretation of it within the context of his statements at the UCLA panel, within the context of his relationship with his son, and within the context of the words on the page of this book. That's my interpretation, is that Frank was a man of his time and his worldview would reflect that. And in today's day and age, some of those values, I'm sure, would be outdated. And some of those values we would say are homophobic. Yes, it's problematic by 2023 standards. And yes, we can and should be critical of harmful ideas in the Dune saga. But ultimately, context is king. And it's important to remember that all works of art are created by complex and messy individuals who live in even more complex and even messier societies. So the time, the place, the person, the relationship, all of that context is important to remember when we're looking this deeply into the writings of Frank Herbert himself. So that's why I wanted to sort of be, you know, explore his life and his relationships and also Manea's words on the page. All right. That's that's my <laughs> very long interpretation of this particular idea of the all-female army and some of the uh ideas on homosexuality that are presented here for Moneo. I do want to hand the mic to you, Leo, because again, we, we uh, took Moneo's words in slightly different ways and context, and we want to present another way of thinking about it. Yeah. And it's, you know, I have, I have sympathy for our listeners because obviously you and I in this moment are kind of, we have our thoughts, we have our notes and everything. I imagine this is actually going to be kind of hard to process, to hear one very thorough analysis and then a very different, very thorough analysis of the same thing. Yeah. Uh, so you out there in listener land, if you want to pause and take a breath, <laughs> just <laughs> let it breathe for a minute. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that. Certainly. That necessity. Um, now, I'm going to be kind of exploring another angle on this whole conversation. And to be clear, naturally, I agree that if, if you understood the text the way that Abu did and many people, because if you look online, this is an interpretation that is out there. You're right. You are correct. Art and writing and narrative, it has the effect on us that it has, and all of that's there. Whatever Frank's beliefs are, we are left with his words, and how those words affect people is real and true and powerful. So, yeah, any any and all kind of declarations of homosexuality is a choice, and that it's all, all of that's categorically deplorable. Get out of here with that shit. <laughs> Don't. If you think that stuff, stop it. <laughs> Don't think that. Yeah. It does seem historically like Frank was probably homophobic, especially based on conversations that uh, Brian Herbert has had about Bruce and, and all of that. Or at least he struggled very directly with Bruce's homosexuality in ways that can't be denied and should not be necessarily forgiven quickly. Right. That being said, let's talk about my analysis, <laughs> as mm-hmm. it were. And uh, what I kind of understand as Leto's beliefs here. 
So here's the shape of their conversation as I understand it. Leto believes that all male armies are problematic for a bunch of reasons across the board. They allow the older men in charge to control breeding by sending the younger men to war and to the front lines and to encounter whatever predators are feasting upon the tribal group, right? The men who are deployed, the draft targets young people and sends them to war, young men, historically. And between sublimation, deflected energies, and cults of youth and adolescence, immature men pose more of a threat to those around them than immature women. And point in case lacking an external enemy, male armies always turn upon their protected population. Right, so these are the reasons why all male armies are problematic. Now, Moneo shares Leto's evidence of this belief system as he's talking to Duncan, contrasting men and women, and is highlighting very intentionally the differences in how they mature as what I think is the key thesis of this whole little spiel. Now, Duncan, throughout the conversation, is upset by, quote, what he saw as an attack on his male self-image, end quote. <laughs> Again, he doth protest a bit too much, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Gives us way more than enough reason to think that Duncan is both misogynistic and homophobic. He's like, ew, women? And then, ew, what, gay? No! Right. Clearly, Duncan Idaho, as a character, <laughs> is misogynistic and homophobic. And this is also, by the way, a pattern in this book. Duncan Idaho, this Gola, is explicitly an old-fashioned thinker in a new progressive world. It is a new enlightened imperium with new ideas, and he is challenged by those ideas in ways that I don't think even need to be defended at all. Because it's like, yeah, no, Duncan's a, he's shitty in a lot of ways in the way that he thinks about things. Now, that's obviously all of what I just said is different from what Abu shared, so I'm going to break down why I came to that understanding. Okay, so on the topic of this sort of like older men controlling the breeding program thing, quote, the male army was a survival of the screening function delegated to the non-breeding males in the prehistoric pack. He says it was a curiously consistent fact that it was always the older males who sent the younger males into battle, end quote. Now, this little section juxtaposes breeding males, quote-unquote breeding males, from quote-unquote non-breeding males, which could mean, when he's talking about breeding versus non-breeding, could be uh, talking about homosexual or asexual men, Mm -hmm. or even heterosexual men who lack the social status to be allowed to breed in certain societies, especially certain prehistoric societies. Mm -hmm. So this introduces the idea, this also introduces the idea of screening, right? Older breeding males always sent the younger men to the dangerous front lines, quote, protecting the core of breeding males, end quote. So we have this kind of first piece of the puzzle, as I see it. Historically, armies were all male and often younger men. Mm -hmm. Leto hits us with the fact, quote, when it was denied an external enemy, the all-male army always turned against its own population, always, end quote. So that's that first piece of the puzzle. Historically, all-male armies younger, and then also bad impulses. So then we get the, the homosexual activities, the, the point where Leto brings up homosexual activities. And Leto also refers to, in that passage, sublimation and deflected energies, and quote, the rest of it, which <laughs> carries a lot of <laughs> fucking weight. Uh, and honestly, I had to look up sublimation. I didn't know what sublimation was. Mm-hmm. 
The definition of sublimation is, quote, divert or modify an instinctual impulse into a culturally higher or socially more acceptable activity, uh, end quote. So you kind of have a base carnal thing, whatever it is, and then you adapt it to fit into the societal structures that you're within, sublimation, I guess. So I take this as the all-male army channels base sexual instincts, and regardless of sexual preference, you know, hormones, young men, exploding hormones, into homosexual activities if they're in an all-male army, which, again, we talked about with the Greeks and, and other examples. And then this also draws our attention more explicitly to adolescence among men. And when Duncan is defensive, Moneo urges him to think about it, quote, Cults of youth and adolescence preserved in the military? It had the ring of truth, end quote. And that brings us to the passage, and I think this is where I disagree with some of the interpretations I've seen online. And it is directly following that. So Moneo's like, consider that for yourself. Duncan thinks about it. He goes, wow, that does kind of have a ring, to, ring of truth to it. And Moneo nods and continues, which I see commenting on the topic of cults of youth and adolescence, Moneo says, quote, the homosexual, latent or otherwise, who maintains that condition for reasons which could be called purely psychological, tends to indulge in pain-causing behavior, seeking it for himself and inflicting it upon others. Lord Leto says this goes back to the testing behavior in the prehistoric pack, end quote. And I think that condition is where a disagreement happens between, I think, myself and you, Abu, and a lot of the interpretations out there. Mm -hmm. Because I see that condition in isolation. I, I totally understand in isolation because I see this quote excerpted out of context on the internet, all sorts of forums and stuff. It sounds like he's saying that condition is homosexuality or homosexuality as it ties to adolescence or, or something like that. But in context, it reads to me as though Moneo is saying, continuing his last thought, saying, that condition is men frozen in adolescence or adolescent behaviors. So this passage could mean men who are homosexual, who because of their sexual preferences don't age into the breeding core group of males in the prehistoric pack, may choose to maintain their adolescent behaviors, those sort of jokes for the intent of hurting people, boys will be boys attitudes. Mm-hmm. Those who choose to maintain those, that cult of adolescence for psychological reasons, purely psychological reasons, tend to cause pain for themselves and others, also due in part to the prehistoric screening process that protects the core of older breeding males. So homosexuals in a society that doesn't have a place and a protected spot for people who don't generate children would self-harm or harm others. Because they don't, they don't have a place to be accepted for not wanting to make children with people of the opposite sex, right? Like, that is partially my interpretation of that little passage. And another piece of why I believe this is what it means is because the following conversational beats are not then a pivot. They are a continuation of the same idea. It's not, oh, but also let me talk about this progressive idea with women maturing. It's Let's continue this conversation with another group within that same thesis. Duncan asks if there's more to the theory. Is there more to this? And uh, Moneo's like, oh, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Quote, when it breaks out of the adolescent homosexual restraints, the male army is essentially rapist. End quote. Which is a very bold sentence. It's a, it's a, yeah. That's a kicker. That'll hit you. Um, 
And in response to Idaho's scowl, quote, Atreides' discipline and moral restraints, end quote, were why it wasn't as much of an issue in the time of Duke Leto Atreides and Duncan and Thufir and Gurney. So because that's the button to the point, it seems to me like Moneo and Leto are commenting that all male armies need something to help divert their base urges, sublimation. Leto's already established that they channel their sexual urges into homosexual activity. And at a best case scenario, that boyish catharsis or that kind of like, you know, whatever it is, is replaced by imposed societal discipline and morality. But in a worst case scenario, the men grow out of that adolescence and then turn the sexual urges onto the conquered, onto the people that they're warring with, or even onto their own populations if they don't have an external force or an external enemy, right? And all of this, by the way, is irregardless of the sexuality of the people considered. He's just talking about men as they are in these adolescent groups, cults, and then as they grow out of them. And then finally, as, as kind of the part of this conversation that I think all of that's column A, column B, Duncan returns to the original question, and Moneo brings home what I think has been the point the entire time. Women, quote, find it easier to mature. They have a compelling physical way of moving from adolescence into maturity. As Lord Leto says, carry a baby in you for nine months, and that changes you, end quote, right? Resharing quotes that we said before, but rather than being kind of a non sequitur or a, uh, a different direction or even like a more progressive thing, I think this is the direct logical conclusion of the previous pages. It's all about maturing out of adolescence. And Leto's various arguments were why all male armies are problematic. And this is the reason why all women armies aren't. And then any passing commentary on sexuality has more to do with what all men do in cults of adolescence and the power dynamics of who grows old, who gets to grow old, who becomes the core of breeding males that are protected societally by the young men who are fodder, you know, fodder for the, the violence on the periphery of society, and then who breeds in these prehistoric power structures. Because so much of Dune is about feudalism and so much of Dune is about these older means of control that we think of as like antiquated today in 2023, but Leto brought back for, for uh, his golden path. So, okay, again, <laughs> marathon. You're in the home stretch. Uh, marathon of talking. Listen, it's totally, totally fine if you don't agree. I think the whole passage makes sense to me in that way. And I see plenty of reasons to have the, the thoughts that I have based on the passage. Uh, but I can also totally see your point, Abu. And especially considering like the UCLA talk and also just in general, Frank having that whole thing with Bruce and uh there was someone who they on Reddit who like knew Bruce and it was like yeah Bruce said this to me and so I it does I totally get that and um and I think if this chapter is a blemish for you on God Emperor of Dune for for anybody that's totally totally fair we're just two fellas sharing our opinions on this very dense and often confusing book so definitely, I'll reiterate, if you out there in listener land have thoughts, questions, feelings, feel free. Reach out to us, gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear other takes. Or if you have, you know, uh, civil discourse that you want to have about these sections, I think we invite that. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Those are two ways of looking at this passage and Moneo's words and Leto's thoughts. And 
Duncan's questions. <laughs> Duncan's <laughs> yeah. very defensive questions. Super defensive questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, like we said earlier, we invite our listeners to share your perspective as well, because we can only share these right. two. That's true. All right. Well, I don't know about y'all, but I need a breather after that. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm going to have to listen back to that three or four times to understand what the fuck I even just said. And I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. So let's actually take a break here. Don't go anywhere, folks, because we still got something cooking in the oven and it smells good. You're not going to want to miss it. (laughs) So we'll see you in a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get into it. Let's talk about our spice morsels, hot, fresh out of the oven. Mm -mm. And the first spice morsel today is cardio. (laughs) (laughs) Is cardio. So in our first chapter of the assigned reading today, we get this weird amount of detail about Nayla climbing the stairs, (laughs) like where she pauses this whole process. Yeah, It's a weird amount of time Mm -hmm. to dwell on it, how methodical she is, all of that. And on a first read, it's really easy to pass over this without comment, but we are Gamjabar, goddammit, and we comment on everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of our thing. So I want to talk about this little moment, and I also want to shout out, this is the second time on this book club series that I've shouted out Georgie Denbro from the Jacaruda forums, but I saw Georgie's analysis and I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I wanted to paraphrase it, share it with all y'all so you can also be like, oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah. We got to track down Georgie and just get him on at this point. <laughs> Explain yeah. this book to us, Georgie. Yeah, please. Love your love your interpretations. So the entire passage describes the methodical ascent of a woman who is, and Nayla's commendable in her stamina, but remarkable in her predictability. And the idea of measured regular steps draws a very poignant contrast against hashtag throwback Thursday Walking without rhythm. Yes. On the Arrakis of old, Mm -hmm. if you walked with rhythm, you would draw the attention of Shai Halud. You would be be a worm snack, is what you'd be. Mm -hmm. And uh, and also, bear in mind, Shai Halud, god of the Fremen, would destroy you mindlessly. Now, avoiding patterns, becoming one with the rest of the natural world, and again, because walking without rhythm is not arbitrary, it's because you're simulating natural sounds and natural movement. Right. That was the only way to survive. Now, 3,000 years later, Nayla moves, quote, in a steady, plodding pace, end quote, even resting at the same point as she always does. She is the embodiment of humanity living within Leto's peace, this sort of structured, forced stagnation. And interestingly, while Nayla is a remarkable byproduct of his breeding program, she's also the exact opposite of the humanity that Leto aims to create which is one that rejects such rigid order and kind of merciless stagnation. Yeah. I'll also say all of this feels very much for me like a metaphor for unpredictability being the key for survival, right? Like walking without rhythm is a long understood trope within the Dune universe, but as a broad metaphor for 
survival, the Kwisatz Haderach awareness. If Leto is a predator, as he has claimed to be, he is like the worm who will hunt you down if you walk with rhythm. He's been as a predator to humanity, spending 3,000 years trying to breed a humanity who, for a prescient predator, can walk without rhythm. Yeah. And Siona, who occasionally fades from his prescient view, may be that first person walking without rhythm, which is right. very, very exciting. Right. The rebel Siona also, by the way. Right. Thinking of charismatic leaders and the warning we've talked about since literally the first page of the first book. Right. Nela here is the prime example of the hashtag yes lord crew, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No matter what Leto says to her, she will yes lord it. Nayla's the person who read Dune and was like, what a great hero story about wow. this hero apologize. I love yeah. this guy, Paul. Well, he's perfect. There's no problem with him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Nayla is literally the epitome of what Frank is warning against. <laughs> yeah. And here, Leto, as part of his process, as part of his golden path, has created Nayla and is using Nayla. Yeah. And we, we see her truly embody everything that Leto and Frank across the whole Dune saga warned against. And we see True. so much of that in just this little walk up to oh, the tower. It's great. It's so good. Also, Nayla definitely would have hated Dune Messiah. Oh my God. <laughs> She's like, kill Bronzo Vix. Yeah. I hate him. Her power ranking, Dune Messiah always at the bottom. <laughs> always at the bottom. Nayla. <laughs> God Emperor always at the top. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I'm in it. It's my favorite book because I'm in it. Well, and finally, gazing upon this person that Leto personally sculpted, just every step of her path yeah. formed by his plan, we get this poignant moment. Quote, he stared with fascination at Nayla's rigid body. Her eyes were empty of everything except adoration. The ultimate rhetorical despotism. And I despise it. Mm. End quote. Mm. Nayla who's commendable for so many reasons, may be the most deserving of sympathy of anyone we've met, and Leto will be the first one to write her a nice little card. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. It's such a striking balance of like guilt that Leto feels all throughout. He hates the religion around him. He hates that he created Nela. He hates that he has to use her. And also the sacrifice and the choice to do it for the greater good, for the golden path, to save all of humanity. Right. It's amazing. It's what makes Leto, too, such an interesting character. Totally, yeah. All right, let's talk about our second morsel today. This one is Seprek and Eridani C. So in that very same chapter, actually, where Nela is having her one-on-one -on -one meeting with Leto, we get a brief aside regarding her past within the fish speakers. And we learn that Leto, quote, brought her back from the distant garrison on Seprek, end quote. Right. So Seprek is a planet in the Dune universe. The Dune Encyclopedia tells us that she actually spent 11 years on Seprek and during that time successfully quelled a rebellion on the planet, through which she got a pretty gnarly laser gun injury as well. It's a scar that she loves to show off to people, you know? <laughs> yeah. Guess where I got this, Seprek. Heard of it? <laughs> now, all of that is super fun, and we'll absolutely go deeper into that rebellion and her upbringing in a full episode on Nayla. I know we keep teasing it, but we will do it. Yeah. <laughs> but here's a little additional spice to this morsel for you astronomy nerds out there. Yeah. The Dune Encyclopedia says that Seprik is the fourth planet of Eridani C, which, as it turns out, is 
actually a real star. Yeah. Quote, an 11th magnitude red dwarf flare star, end quote, to be more precise. Sounds like a Yu-Gi-Oh villain. <laughs> like a Yu-Gi-Oh monster. I summon 11th magnitude red dwarf flare star. <laughs> monster reborn. Yeah. It's like, is that enough descriptors for you? <laughs> now, as cool as that is, unfortunately for Frank and the Dune Encyclopedia, which were written in the 80s, a lot has been learned about Eridani C in the late 20th century, and modern astronomers now believe that it's likely that there are actually no planets around this star. Yeah. So Sepreg, very likely, not a real planet, couldn't exist around Eridani C. One of the reasons for that is for a planet to be within range of Eridani C, it would have to deal with <laughs> the very regular flares that pop up. And these flares, quote, cause large momentary increases in the emission of X-rays as well as visible light. This would be lethal to Earth-type life on planets near the flare star, end quote. Mm. So clearly not a star system that could support planets and or life based on what we know in modern astronomy. But in Nela's defense, sure, yeah, we learn in today's reading that she lifted a 200-pound man with one arm <laughs> <laughs> so what the fuck is a regular ass solar flare going to do to her? Yeah. Maybe the rebellion she quelled was just solar flares, And she just like flexed her arms and they stopped. Yeah. And everyone's like, well, fuck this planet's habitable yeah. now. <laughs> Not a laser gun injury, a solar flare injury yeah. <laughs> from a star. She says it's a laser gun injury because she's humble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's like, oh, this, it was a laser gun. Injury. Yeah, People worry. are like, wow. I, I no. tamed an entire star. It's chill. That's how I got this promotion. <laughs> If that's what it takes to get a promotion in today's day and age, my goodness. God, she's such fitness goals. I want to lift a 200-pound <laughs> man with one arm. Are you kidding me? Yeah, truly. Get me on that Nalo workout diet. Yeah. And that workout routine. <laughs> well, there we are. There it is. Another, another one in the books. Another one in the books. I was going to say in the bag. Oh, uh, I guess. Well, that's a phrase, too. That's also a phrase. You put yeah. a lot of stuff in stuff. Yeah. Don't yeah, we? Yeah. In idioms. Yeah. But then the cat gets out of the bag. So if it's oh, in the bag oh. and it's a cat, you got to be careful. Careful. Got to make the drawstrings tight. Indeed. But hey, <laughs> for next episode, <laughs> make sure you've read chapters 13 through 15. Yes. If the, uh, again, edition of book that you're using is different than ours, it's the chapter, the final chapter to read is the one that ends on the sentence, quote, Moneo marched in silence, his apprehension increasing with each step. Oh, shit. Quote. Yeah, that's me deciding to go into a McDonald's to get some food. Just every step of the way, I'm regretting it more and more. <laughs> but that McFlurry's calling your name. Oh, Oreo McFlurry. Mm. It's just going to be the name of my first son. <laughs> Oreo. Oreo. Get your ass over here. Make Oreo McFlurry when he's in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the full name. The full name. That's when he knows. <laughs> All right, before we let you go, as always, we want to remind you of some ways to support the show. and to keep in touch with us here on Gamjabar. Indeed. Now, the best way to support us is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Gamjabar. Not only will you be supporting this podcast, but you'll also get cool benefits like completely ad-free episodes, weekly blooper clips and bonus content, and an invite to our exclusive Discord server where you'll get to talk to our geeky geeky community <laughs> and also you get to chat with us because we spend a lot of time in there talking to folks 
especially with like trailers and stuff on the oh horizon. Oh my gosh, yes. It's going to be it's going to be a fun time. It's getting to, hype. Like, pick stuff apart together. Yeah. Uh well, another way to support us if that isn't enough, another way to support us is to get yourself some Dune themed merchandise from our store, gomjabarshop.com. We've got apparel, arts, mm. mugs. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I pluralized arts, apparels, <laughs> arts, mugs, bags, all sorts of things. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> bags that you could put cats in. You could put a cat in the bag. Hello. Hello. Don't let it get out. Don't let the cat out. <laughs> don't listen. Loose cats sh- sh- sink, sink ships. ships. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm glad you saw where I was going with that malafor. <laughs> Well, it's a great way to support us and get yourself something kind of fun. And again, a lot of them have like inside jokes or inside kind of lore knowledge that most people won't even know is Dune themed. They'll just go, wow, that's a cool shirt. You know, thanks. Definitely. (laughs) The way we like it. Yeah. All right. And a final reminder. I know we've said it a couple times this episode, but a final reminder that we'd love to hear from all of you. So email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. And send us your thoughts and your questions as you read along with us. Yep. We are finally tackling some of those old emails, so we're catching up, folks. All right? <laughs> yeah. Don't let our inbox ever hit zero. Slam that send button <laughs> and send us a message. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> Wait, Duncan's starting to look a little worried. Duncan! I'm Atreides! Atreides! Duncan! Duncan! Hey! Hey! Shh! Shh! That's okay. Good, Duncan. Good, Duncan. Are you petting me <laughs> what's <laughs> happening and why am i calm why am i calm suddenly <laughs> well friends there is no real ending it's just the place where you stop the recording but this podcast is always one step beyond logic so help spread the word of Moadib and leave us a review on apple podcasts and spotify and be sure to check out the other shows on the lore party podcast network on loreparty.com you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. We're also on TikTok at Gamjabar Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. <laughs> <laughs>